Welcome to Unmonitored Least, Unmonitored's weekly podcast on the big events shaping the region. My name is Amrin Zaman, and I'm a senior correspondent for Unmonitored, who reports from the Middle East. And every so often, I speak to some really interesting and super smart women about the big stories of the day. And today I'll be talking to Razia Akkoc, a British-Turkish correspondent based in Ankara for uh, Agence France Presse, uh, which is the French international news agency. And there aren't too many foreign journalists in Ankara. And I argue that, you know, the ones in Istanbul have views, but the ones in Ankara are actually producing the news. Uh, Razia used to work at The Guardian and The Daily Telegraph covering foreign affairs in London and she also has an amazing weekly newsletter uh, on Turkey called Turkey Recap which she co-edits with Diego Cupolo, a fellow journalist who also does some really terrific work for our monitor. So welcome to the show, Razia. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. <laughs> well, uh, Razia, you have the distinction of being one of the rare reporters who actually lives in Ankara, <laughs> Turkey from the Turkish capital, as one should, in my opinion. That's certainly what I did. Um, so I, I want to start by asking you about the palace, you know, um, Erdogan's court, as it were. And, you know, how does one get information out of there? How does one actually, uh, you know, have access to those circles? Is it at all possible? Or do you also have to read the tea leaves like the rest of us? I'd say, I mean, it, just literally a, a few years ago, I don't think it was that inaccessible as it is today. I mean, before we used to be able to meet with some presidential advisors. And I don't want to completely say that the palace is inaccessible. What is really inaccessible is being able to talk to an advisor and get some understanding of what's going on. And I don't think that's because they're trying to limit information to me. I actually think that many advisors may not be fully aware of what's going on themselves. So if you said to them, well, you know, why is this decision being taken? They can't give you an answer, not because they're trying to block the answer. I don't think they know the answer because the way I look at the palace, I don't see a strategy. So to ask about strategy is to ask the wrong question. That's really interesting. So are you basically saying that the decision-making is very tightly controlled and it's basically Erdogan and perhaps a handful of people around him. Uh, and there's a wall between them and, uh, you know, the rest of the palace. But they're kind of guessing along with the rest of us. That is the way that I understand it, because we saw this with the Berat Albayrak, the, the former finance minister and son-in-law. We see the speculation he's going to return and then some people close to him say, oh, no, he's, he's not going to return. So what I think is happening is you have some within the AKP hearing some gossip. Then you have maybe some gossip being spread in the parliament. And so everyone's hearing different things. And I think we're hearing the same thing from the same people. But then there's also camps. 
And so which camp are you talking to when you speak to someone? And, and that's a really crucial, I mean, that's a difficulty that I have faced when I speak to someone, because I wonder, okay, you don't seem to know much information because you're claiming to me that Al-Bayrak is going to return. And then I'm still waiting. Right. So can you unpack these camps for us a bit? We know that there's um, Al-Bayrak, who is uh, the son-in-law, who's married to the oldest daughter, Esma. We know that he's sort of are not on particularly good terms with Erdogan's youngest son, Bilal, who has his own camp. Then there's the interior minister, Soylu, who seems to also not get on well with Berat either, and sort of they're all kind of working against each other. Can you unpack that a bit and explain to us, you know, what effect that has in the end in terms of, you know, policymaking, governance, and, and does Erdogan actually encourage this rivalry? Is he really that cynical where he's sort of playing one side off the other all by way of trying to keep himself on top and uh, holding on to absolute power? I, you know, I worry with what I'm about to say next that some people are going to find my analysis naive, but I don't think that Erdogan is actively playing the Al-Bayrak camp and the Soyla camp and thinking about what happened with Arbal and wanting to create this drama internally. This is a man who's previously spoken about the metal law, which is the metal fatigue within the party. He's someone that is aware that the more united the party, the stronger the campaigning on the ground can be. What I do think is an issue is that he own, I think he really or at least he did before the finance minister resigned, he really trusts Al-Bayrak. And when you have a situation when you mix family and work and your trust is in the family, and from what I'm hearing, Al-Bayrak and Erdogan, things seem to have improved since November when Al-Bayrak resigned, you then naturally cause a bit of unhappiness within your own party because someone like Fahrettin Altun is from the Al-Bayrak camp but you can see and the thing is we haven't even mentioned the Pelican Jalar the, the Pelicans and how much they're still relevant and so what you're getting is more of a sense of different people wanting access but some automatically getting that because of who they're married to but I don't I really don't think Erdogan is trying to, to cause this issue because it's really not in his interest to do so. so. Just, for, just so our audience knows, Arbal uh, is the, uh, the um, central bank governor who raised interest rates and then got sacked and sending the lira into a downward spiral, uh, like very recently. And um, Fahrettin Altun is the head of communications for Erdogan. He's sort of um, Mr. Propaganda, right? Uh, and so... What you're saying is, is, it doesn't sound naive at all, no, but it also segues into my next question, which is about the relationship between Erdogan and his unofficial coalition partner, Devlet Bahçeli, the head of the far-right nationals movement party. Uh, you know, there, there are differing views on, you know, who actually holds the reins in that relationship. So... When you have Erdogan not being able to, 
you know, get rid of the S-400s or not being able to return to the peace process with the Kurds, which all seem like very obvious things to do if you do actually want to improve your reset, your relationships, uh, relationship with the European Union and the United States. Yet he's not doing that. And people say, well, it's because of Bahçeli. Bahçeli won't let him. Then there are others who will say, no, it's actually because he doesn't want to. What do you think is actually going on there? How much agency does Bahçeli actually have? I, because I'm working on a story related to the Bacili Erdogan relationship, I spoke to one expert who really put it well to me and said, even if Bacili is affecting all of this change, you know, he's saying what he wants, it is still Erdogan that accepts this and Erdogan can still say no. And we must remember that Erdogan can still say no. I really find the security policy of Turkey, that like the state security policy, and you mentioned the Kurdish peace process. I think those are the issues where Bacili's influence can really be felt. I mean, if we even just go back to 2018, it was Bacili who first said, I think we should have an early election or a snap election. And then Erdogan came out and said, yes, we should. So that's just one example. But then often, whenever we get announcements from Erdogan, he's either had several meetings with Bacili or he will later then have meetings with Bacili. So the decisions that are being made in terms of policy, not every single policy, but a lot of policies are made together. For example, the amnesty law that came early last year, that saw the release of a mafia figure and it was Bacili that had wanted that. And that to me felt very much like Bacili had pushed for it and Erdogan acquiesced. Because for Erdogan, the way I read it, it's sure, you know, release that figure, that's fine. And it's the same with the pro-Kurdish HDP People's Democratic Party, which is Turkey's third largest party and it's the second largest opposition party. It was Bacili that led the calls for the closure. Now, I'm not saying that Erdogan does not believe what he says when he says the HDP is linked to the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, as we refer to them. But we've seen figures like Numan Kurtulmush say, you know, what kind of benefit does closing parties really bring? He sort and of- And Numan Kurtulmush is the deputy uh, head of the AKP, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so the way that I understand that relationship is that some policies have been pushed forward by Bacili and Erdogan sees it in his interest to keep his alliance partner happy. Now that doesn't mean that Erdogan has to rely on Bacili, although mathematically he does need the votes in parliament, but it just means that, you know, there's a bit of give and take. And Bacili, if we look carefully, usually in coalitions, there are ministers that are given to the junior partner. In this case, Bacili hasn't sought a role for himself overtly or for his party overtly. But we know that they have figures that they support. You know, there's Suleiman Soylu, the interior minister that Bacili and the MHP have supported. When he resigned last year, which later Erdogan didn't accept, Bacili came out and was like, no, please don't accept this. And I'm, again, Erdogan did not want to accept it evidently, but I think he obviously must have read 
that his partner did not want to either. Because we saw with our Vidat's resignation, we didn't see the same reaction from the MHP. So it's this idea that if you want your partner to be happy, you give, there's a bit of give and take. So you give but, a bit. I mean, in the meantime, something else is happening. You look at the poll numbers and the sort of halo effect of his coalition with Erdogan is really taking its toll on Bahjili's poll numbers. And so, you know, if it's a question of, you know, straightforward mathematics and having someone on board who helps you, you know, get over the uh, 50% mark when you're running for president again, or helps you sort of uh, form a working majority in the parliament, uh, that's being called into question because, because Bahjeli is also suffering as a result of all the things that are sapping the AKP's own um, uh, own popularity. So going forward, do you do you see him sticking with this alliance? At this point in time, I do. And there's a point I want to make, which I'm not going to claim as my own. It, it was said to me by another expert who said, if you look at what's going on in Turkey, you mentioned the lira fall after Naji Abal was ousted as central bank governor. And he goes, still, we see the Jumhuri Tifaka, which is the official name of the AKP MHP, the Bacili Erdogan Alliance. The fall hasn't been as significant. And I remember there were expectations that the MHP would lose votes in 2018 because of the support to the AKP, which didn't happen. So at this point in time, I'm not convinced that Bacili, when he's getting what he wants, or is about to in the case of HDP, to me, I think the party could be closed. And so I think why would Bacili let that go at this point in time? That doesn't mean to say that later in the future, either one couldn't break this alliance because it's Turkey. And I've definitely made errors in the past in my analysis, uh, especially after the June 2015 elections. I'm always wary to be too confident in, in predictions, but I think I cannot see them breaking up today or anytime soon. And are you expecting early elections? Do you know, in Ankara, you mentioned being um, me being the only one of the only foreign correspondents in Ankara. We love to speculate about early elections. If I meet an opposition politician, if I meet a diplomat, especially from the European Union embassies, that, that's the question that always comes up. And at this point, we've spoken about it so much. We might just be right because we keep talking about it. So <laughs> I, just don't, I, I don't see why Erdogan would want to have an early election because no one's calling for his head, to, like no one's calling for, for Erdogan to, to, to resign. Like there isn't this big movement to, to get him out. So he's got the power, he won. And so everything is fine. That doesn't mean to say it might not happen. And if you asked me two weeks ago, I would have been more confident in saying, I don't see an early election. But ever since the HDP events, and then the Istanbul Convention, which is the binding treaty to fight against domestic violence and gender-based violence, Turkey withdrew from that a couple of weeks ago. Those moves have made some of the analysts in Ankara, including myself, think maybe, but even then, I mean, it's already, we're already approaching halfway through 2021. There's only a year and a half to go to 2023. 
I mean, would Erdogan need to at this point? I'm not convinced. What would he gain from it? But who knows? Meanwhile, you have this other um, political figure who's sort of whose uh, poll numbers are rising by the day, Meral Akshener, the leader of the uh, E-Good Party, the party that uh, was formed after she broke away from Bakhtili. And she seems to be positioning herself as a a sort of kingmaker, isn't she? Uh, Certainly for the opposition bloc and seems to be an aspiring presidential candidate and so she's got to get the, res- the, the um, remaining members of that opposition bloc to sign off on her. Uh, and that would include the Kurds. Um, do you think she has a real chance of being able to pull together all these different c- constituencies, as particularly the Kurds, being that she is a nationalist, pull them together and sort of uh, uh, become the, the sort of main candidate? And if so, what sort of chance does she have against Erdogan? At this point in time, any candidate, including Akshener, I think Erdogan is still the force to be reckoned with and would still win, especially were there to be an early election. But there's something interesting with Akshener. I remember in 2017, when E-Party, Good Party launched, there was a lot of excitement, you know, especially because she's the only other female political party leader alongside the HDP's co-chair, Pervin Buldan. And in Turkish politics, there's not many, you know, strong, really out there politicians, and she's one of them. But I remember there was a lot of excitement, and then that excitement died down, especially when I don't think she mustered over 10% when she ran for the presidency in 2018. But in recent months, maybe the, the past year, As an opposition figure, especially after the alliance with the CHP, which is the main opposition Republican People's Party, she seems to have, she is the character that can really, in Turkish we say lafsokmak, you know, she can really put a word, like the way that she can give a soundbite is so effective and she really taps into what people are worried about. So right now she's really discussing the economy and the ESNAF, the traders and how they're struggling, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. And so because of that, you can tell that she's she's a character that wants the job. And in Turkish politics, aside from Erdogan, I cannot think of anyone that I look at and think, oh yeah, you, you want to be president. You know, we know that Kılıçdaroğlu doesn't seek to to run himself. That's maybe the CHP leader, the main opposition leader. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe Muharrem Inca, who is used to be of the CHP and ran as a uh, candidate for the presidency in 2018, he plans to launch his own party this year. And so he may be a character that one could say does want to be president as well. And so I think that's something rare about Akshana that you can tell she wants power, you know, like she's not there. She's not just going to be criticizing like this criticism isn't her saying, oh, look, it's really bad. It's really saying, look, it's really bad. And I am here to be that person to resolve these issues, you know. And in the- typically in Turkey, I mean, it's conservative right that, that, that wins elections, right, that, that sort of gets the most support. So, and her nationalist credentials are sort of unassailable, so kind of hard to 
um, attack her on that front. So we'll have to see how she does. But then there'll be people, quite a few people who will come out and say, the conversation we're just having right now is completely useless and stupid because in fact, you know, Erdogan, no matter what, will remain in power. And, you know, he'll continue having elections just to accord himself that, you know, requisite veneer of legitimacy that populist leaders like him, you know, the Chavez's and others of the world need. Um, would you agree with that? Because I just heard you say, like, you think that no matter what Erdogan will win, as, and you seem to be suggesting that he would win, you know, uh, through a proper fair election, that he's like the guy still. The thing that I hadn't touched up on, uh, on that you had referred to before was the Kurdish vote. And, and the view of Akshinir. And I, I really think that Akshinir can sway a lot of votes. I am not sure she can get the Kurdish vote. And that's why I think Erdogan remains the candidate that can win. And again, you, you're right to interpret the way that I was saying it. I do mean that he would that he would win a vote because I don't think there's a candidate that each element of the opposition would be happy with. You know, like with Akshinir, I do think nationalist conservatives, secular nationalists especially, um, and maybe some of the religious nationalists would be happy to vote for a figure like her. But she's really tainted because I think she served for a few months as minister in the 90s. Now, what her legacy in that period was, I cannot say I know too much, but she really suffers from coming from that period and being accused of being part of a government that was it was just an awful time in terms of state violence, um, especially on the security issue and the fight against the PKK. And so there's going to be the legacy of that. Whereas with Erdogan, his popularity surpasses his ruling AKP party. And so even if he loses a bit, because he only needs 50 plus one. And right now he's he's got over that. But this but that's not what the polls seem to show. They seem to indicate otherwise. And you see uh, figures like the, your mayor in Ankara, Mansur Yavash, and the mayor of Istanbul doing better than him in the polls. I always, I'm a bit sceptical of polls. I've, I've been burnt with the, um, the European Union referendum in the UK. Um, and then... <laughs> And then with, with Trump, when I say burn, I mean, I could, I could see these things coming because I think when you look at Turkish politics, you're very cynical. You know, like I saw Brexit coming. I saw, I think I saw Trump coming just because you're so, we're so pessimistic when it comes to Turkish politics. You, I just applied the same thinking. But I don't know if I trust the polls to fully show the picture. I mean, there's definitely a, a decline in, in the share of the vote for the AKP, I can believe that. I'm just not sure that Erdogan, because this is a man who can, during the election, he spoke six times in, in some weekends in 2018, which means that he can really control the narrative. And we saw this with the post 2016, the failed coup, the attempted overthrow of him. You know, he came out and sort of accepted that the, the I think there was a bit of a mea culpa about his relationship with the, the Gulen movement, the Fethullah Gulen, the US-based Muslim preacher who Turkey says orchestrated the failed coup. So I think he is a politician, maybe less so than before, but he's always been able to understand what's going on with the people. Now, that doesn't mean to say that today it's the same thing, because I think the economic 
difficulties are infinitely worse than they used to be. And I think it's getting worse. Inflation has been persistently in the double digits. And as someone who's lived here for five years, I can see the, the major price increases. And I'm someone whose wage is going to be better than someone on minimum wage in Turkey. But I just think that who else would you back? If you're an AKP voter or an MHP voter, and you're a bit angry with the way that the parties are going, or who would you vote for to show that you're angry but then I might be making that mistake that experts have made which is because we got it wrong in 2015 we're going to go the other way and think no no no, no there's no chance that Erdogan will go so I, I sometimes get stuck with my own thoughts on this subject and think are you just trying to not get it right wrong so you're, getting, <laughs> you're getting it wrong the other way around but I, I do think if there was an election this year Erdogan would win Oh, because gosh. he has the speeches um, and, and he's a good orator, you know, whether you like him or not, that's neither here nor there. He is a man that, you know, speak, speaks well. and He's certainly very charismatic. Well, on that uh, pessimistic note, I should say, um, I think uh, we'll sort of say goodbye and uh, okay. uh, thank you very very much Razia for being on our program really thank appreciate you very much it. for having me and uh, look forward to reading all your good stuff as, and in turkey recap love turkey recap and thank you love your partner uh, Diego who writes for us Diego Cupolo thank you very much Razia thank you thank you for your support <laughs> not at all bye bye take care bye I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnists reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, Two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here. On Israel, Al Monitor. So this brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope to be with you again very soon with another very interesting female guest. Music